Turn in your Bibles to that first chapter of the book of Hebrews, where we shall begin our study of this book. Last Sunday we began our study, but without going to the book per se, but dealing with the contextual background of the book of Hebrews. To whom was the book of Hebrews written? But to believing, Christ-following Jews. Not to all Jews, but to believing Jews. Those who had heard about the Lord Jesus Christ, believed that He was risen from the dead, had been baptized in His name, but who were now tempted because of their former religion, knowing that it was God's religion, who were tempted because of the great persecution they were receiving from their fellow Jews, had within them a desire to return to Old Testament worship. Those are the souls to whom God sends this message. Jews who have a desire to return to Old Testament worship. Believing Jews that God is fearful for their perseverance in the true New Testament gospel. He does not want to see them revert back to the form of worship they received from Moses. The who of Hebrews deals with the person that wrote the book of Hebrews. And he is Paul, without a doubt. Peter tells us that Paul wrote Hebrews in clear, plain language. Paul himself signs the book of Hebrews with his salutation. He makes reference to Timothy. He makes reference to the fact that he was writing from Italy. And if you'll read the book of Hebrews, you'll know, if you know the Word of God, that no one but Paul could have written it because it's in Paul's language. As you read the book of Hebrews, you see Colossians. You see Philippians coming off the pages in the way that Paul writes the book. And you couldn't have picked a finer man to write the book of Hebrews than the Apostle Paul. Did any man know the Jews' religion better than the Pharisee of the Pharisees after the most straightest sect of our religion? Paul was a Pharisee, raised at the feet of Gamaliel, learned in all the wisdom, knowledge of the Jewish religion, and most zealous in practicing that religion. Couldn't have been better than the Apostle Paul to write this particular book. Let us look again at the why of Hebrews. Why did Paul write of this book? He wrote the book of Hebrews to prove the superiority of New Testament religion, of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Old Testament religion, to the law of Moses, and to Moses the prophets and the priests of Israel. Consider again for a moment, what if you had been a Jew, say of 40 years of age, when you heard the gospel from Peter or one of the other apostles? As a boy, you had been raised, sitting down, rising up in the morning, in the evening, walking by the way. You had been taught the law of God. You knew that as a nation, as a group of people, you had the law of God and the rest of the world God had left in darkness. That temple that you went to three times a year, 
especially for the feast of the Passover, that seven-day feast. You knew that was God's temple. And what an impressive temple it was. A great wonder of the world. Titus himself, the captain of the Roman armies that destroyed the city of Jerusalem, said if it had not been for God giving him the city and the temple, it could not be taken by force. That's how impregnable it was. That would have been impressive as a boy. And then to see those Levites offering those great sacrifices on golden altars, washing their hands in golden labors, wearing fancy robes and vestments. You knew that that temple was God's. You knew that those priests were God's. You knew that when they read from the Scriptures every Sabbath day, that was God's Word. You knew that Jerusalem was God's city. You knew that all the prophets were to your people. It was your heritage. And you had worshipped this God and adored Him and taught Him to your children and taught His Word to your children. But then you hear about a carpenter's son named Jesus of Nazareth. Didn't have much money. Didn't have any money. Didn't have much of a reputation. Didn't have a home. Traveled around among all the poor people. The people that flocked around him were publicans, harlots, and other sinners. And you are called upon to follow the man Jesus of Nazareth and to forsake all of this other worship because to follow Jesus was to forsake the other worship because in following Jesus you were thrown out of the synagogues. You were thrown out of the temple. And you were persecuted by the very religious leaders you had respected and appreciated as God's ministers. Can you imagine the dilemma? And then after you follow Jesus Christ, things don't get much better. They get worse. You're stoned. You're sought by wild men like Saul of Tarsus. That he might force you to blaspheme and to recant the heresy of following Jesus of Nazareth. So your life is made miserable. There's such a great persecution at Jerusalem, you have to run away. You don't have a place to live. You lose your job. All in the name of Jesus. Would you have a tendency to want to reconsider your decision and think about going back to Old Testament worship? You knew it was the worship of God. No doubt about it. And the apostles never said it wasn't. But now they want you to follow Jesus with a new form of worship. Dunking in water. Drinking a little wine and unleavened bread to remember his death. And meeting in simple places. Upper rooms, brethren, do not equate to the temple's courtyard. What would you do? Well, you'd think about going back, and that is what the Jews did. There arose certain of the Pharisees which believed that said a man must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And many Jews followed them. They were zealous of the law. Therefore, the Apostle Paul wrote a book designed to prove that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, was superior in his divine nature and in his human nature to anything that could be raised from Old Testament worship in order to strengthen the faith of these Jews. They ought to follow Jesus, the carpenter's son. 
And that is the message of Hebrews to us today. It's the same thing. There is no form of religion. There is no religion. There is no elements or relics from the Old Testament that can ever compare to Jesus Christ. That is the why of the book of Hebrews. Without understanding that, the book of Hebrews will be a closed book to you. That opens up the book of Hebrews. You must pretend you are a Jew following the lowly Jesus of Nazareth as opposed to the great, formal, sensual, glorious religion of the Old Testament. Once you see that, you can then follow Paul's line of reasoning from verse 1 to the end of the book as he overthrows the religion of the Jews to convince these poor believing Jews that the man they're following, the man whose name they were baptized in, is none other than God Himself, the creators of the worlds, superior to the angels, the prophets, Moses, and all the saints. And with that understanding, Hebrews becomes like a Dick and Jane Primer. So simple. It is all plain to him that understandeth, the Bible tells us. And if we understand that, it becomes so plain. The what of Hebrews is how Paul goes about doing that. He uses the word better. He uses the word more. He uses the word great and greater. You ought to look up those words in a concordance at the study by itself to see all the better things. In, in verse 4, being made so much better than the angels. And from verse 4 right through the rest of the book, Jesus is better. New Testament worship is better. The gospel is better in different ways, as comparisons are made by the Apostle. There is no book that contains more forceful, strong, serious, severe warnings about apostasy and being weak in your faith than the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a book to get a hold of you and grab you and shake you and convince you that you ought to follow Christ without wavering, and never to look back, but to look forward, and not to be deluded, or distracted, or deceived by anything that might happen, whether it be persecution, or whether it be some other false religion, or false doctrine, but to look to Christ, and to follow Him. And that if you mistreat the Son of God, you are dealing with God Himself, and the apple of his eye. And to mistreat the Lord Jesus Christ, or not to give him the reverence and respect, worship and obedience that is due him, you run in danger of severe judgment. The book of Hebrews has tremendous warnings for us. But let us look now at this first chapter of this great book. As I come to you this morning, I am overwhelmed with the sense of inadequacy to possibly communicate the glory of this first chapter. There isn't a better book in your Bible. Find it. Throw it at me. Hebrews is the greatest because it exalts Christ more clearly and in stronger terms than any other book. Chapter 1 starts this, the whole scene in such a glorious fashion. Seven different quotes from the Old Testament. Seven proofs in verses 2 and 3 of the preeminence of Christ. It's a glorious chapter. How in the world do you communicate that? I've sat, I've grinned 
I roared. David came rushing in last night. The air conditioner was running. There was a lot of noise in the house. But I was sitting in there reading, and I just said, wow! How do you communicate that if you haven't read Hebrews? If you're not prepared this morning, it's going to fall on dead ears. But it is the greatest book because Jesus is king. Do you want someone to look to and to trust in that is great? Well, watch how high Jesus Christ gets before we finish with verse 14 of chapter 1. One brother, kind brother, when he heard last Sunday that I intended to preach through the 13 chapters of Hebrews in 13 weeks, said, how in the world are you going to do that? And I said, I don't know. I could preach one sermon in the first word of Hebrews chapter 1. If you read the book of Hebrews, then you go back to the first word, you are filled with an overwhelming sense of God. I can't do it. I can't even preach five minutes on the first word of Hebrews Hebrews chapter 1, or we'll never get to Hebrews chapter 2. God. Paul doesn't waste one moment in getting to his argument. What's better, Old Testament or New Testament? He takes it up in verse 1. God. Now, Paul is slick. Paul is smart. Paul was political. Paul did not start off by saying, Paul, an apostle and servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, called to the Gentiles primarily, but also writing to you Jews. Do you know how that would have gone over? To the Gentiles primarily? They'd have burned the book. Even... Regenerate, converted Jews couldn't stand the fact it was hard for them to accept that God had shifted his ministry to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul knew that over in Romans chapter 11 when he said, if I might by any means provoke them to jealousy. Because they didn't like that fact. But he starts out with the word God. And he also says in this first verse, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. He mentions God, and that Old Testament worship that was delivered to the fathers was from God. Now, a Jew reading just that first verse settles his coat down on his shoulders and stands an inch taller because Paul is appealing to the fact that we Jews had the revelation of God in distinction to the Gentiles. Gentiles didn't have it. We had it. Paul's starting off well, isn't he? Look at Acts 13 to see that this is his manner with the Jews. You know, Paul said in one place, to the Jews became I as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. He's smart. We need to be smart when we deal with people. Now remember, here in Acts chapter 13, verse 14, he walks into a synagogue They look him out. They know that he's got a doctorate degree or for some reason. He's got some training. And they say, men and brethren, do you have any word of exhortation for the people? If you do, say on. He asks for the back door to be locked. He makes his way toward the front. And he starts a sermon this way. In verse 16, men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers and so forth. Notice, he starts out immediately, the God of this people 
chose our fathers. Same method in Hebrews. There's 150 proofs that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. This is just one of them. He's crafty with the Jews. He's in the synagogue here, and so he preaches to Jews, and they hear him. Over here in Hebrews 1, he begins the same way. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. We have a religion, fellow Jews, in which God speaks. It's not a mystery religion. God speaks. That's a sermon, brethren. Do you want a God that doesn't speak? How many nations of this earth have had a God they have bowed down to? How many mothers, out of desperation for their sick children, have fallen down before a God that has never spoken? How many priests, how many ministers have had to administer the worship of a God and present his teachings to a people when he never spoke? Do you ever think about that fact? We have a religion and a God where God speaks. He has revealed himself. We're not all wrapped up in mystery. God has revealed himself. We can know him, and he expects us to know him. What a blessing. Do you know what a minority you are in simply with the first verse? God speaks. They knew that. Boy, did they ever know that. You go read Acts chapter 7. The law was given by the disposition of angels. You go read Galatians chapter 3. The law was ordained in the hands of angels. They knew that the law of God had come, and, had come to them from God by angels and by His prophets. And they were thankful that they had a religion, that God had revealed Himself to them. Look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. The fact that God had given them His Word and God had spoken to them by the prophets was something they boasted in. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. Notice what the Jews did. They rested in the law. God wrote this Old Testament to us. He didn't do that for the Gentiles. He wrote it to us. They rested in the law and made their boast of God. God is our God. God chose our fathers. God delivered us from Egypt. Verse 18, And knowest His will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. How many times have I preached to you from Deuteronomy that the Word of God in the Old Testament is our life, our good, our understanding, our superiority over the nations. They knew that well. And so Paul begins immediately by appealing to that fact. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Sundry times means at different times, piece by piece. Examples. In Genesis 3.15, God speaks to the woman and says, God speaks to the serpent about the woman and says that the woman's seed shall bruise the serpent's head. That's not much of a revelation, is it? There was a time of revelation. You come over to Genesis chapter 12 and Abraham 
is told by God that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, you know what that means because you have the New Testament, but they didn't. They didn't, they didn't know they didn't know it either. Do you follow that? God spoke at sundry times, a little bit here, a little bit later, a little bit after that. No man ever received a full revelation. Moses had quite a bit, but what did he know about Christ? As much as Isaiah? No way. As much as David? No way. It is a progressive revelation with little dabs given at different times and in divers' manners by all sorts of means. How did Moses learn the name, I am that I am? By listening to a burning bush. How did the Israelites receive judgment many times when they went to the high priest? He dropped two little stones into his breastplate called the Urim and the Thummim. And God gave him the answer. Sometimes the Lord appeared as the captain of the Lord's host. Sometimes he appeared in a vision. Sometimes it was in a dream. Sometimes it was at the top of a ladder. Sometimes it was wrestling with the man all night long. Sometimes it was by handing a man a piece of stone where God's finger had written instructions. Do you understand divers' manners? <laughs> God used divers' manners to communicate His Word to His people and at sundry times. It was an incomplete, it was a partial, and it was a progressive revelation in the Old Testament. No man ever knew very much. He just knew his little bit he put it down, he gave it to the people, and then someone else had to add to it. And so it progresses from Genesis 3.15 all the way down to the end of Malachi, where Malachi is describing the coming of the Lord and the messenger that God would send before his face to prepare his way. John the Baptist, I mean, it's getting quite specific. Micah tells us what city he's going to be born in, the city of Bethlehem. Way back in Genesis 49, Jacob just said that he was going to come from the tribe of Judah. But by the time we get to the Psalms, we know he's going to come from David's family. God, who at sundry times, little bits over a couple thousand years, and in divers' manners, all different ways, spake unto the fathers by the prophets. Can you think of some of the prophets that God gave to that great nation? Moses. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Micah, Nahum, all those great prophets, Elisha, Elijah. The prophets were a respected group in the heritage of those Jews. And God had used them to reveal His message. I mean, how many times did those prophets stand up and proclaim some great news to the nation of Israel on how God was going to deliver them. Like Samuel. God had used prophets. And yet, they had the Old Testament which told them about the lives of the prophets. Pick anyone. Pick Abraham. Was his life perfect? 
Why did he go into Hagar to make the promised son? Was Moses perfect? Why did he smite the rock instead of speaking to it? Was David perfect? Why did he go into Bathsheba? They all knew that. God spoke through the prophets. The prophets were sinners. The prophets only had partial knowledge. The prophets didn't know how they were going to receive God's message because it came in different ways. That was time past. And that time past was Old Testament time past. God's dealings with Israel as a nation. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And there we take the shift. The first three verses have the argument, Jesus Christ is superior to the prophets. He first of all appeals to the Jews in verse 1, and oh, they'd love verse 1. That's right. That's right. God blessed us. It was our fathers that had the prophets. Great prophets like Moses, like Elijah, like Isaiah. But now he shifts. In time past, we stand at the dividing point in time, Hebrews. In time past, God dealt this way. And I remember, these people know about Jesus Christ. They're just not fully, they need some more convincing of how great he is. In time past, God used prophets. In these last days, he has spoken unto us by his Son. And that's where we take up in verse 2. That God has spoken by Jesus Christ hath in these last days. Those last days were the last days of the Jewish or Israelite economy. The last days of the Old Testament relationship with God. The last days before God obliterated the nation. Do you think that these Jews had ever heard the message of Jesus Christ from Matthew 24 or from Matthew 23? Or from Matthew 12, where Jesus Christ had promised to destroy that nation. They knew that message. And that it would occur in their generation. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. If you go over and read the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of Jesus Christ coming to the nation of Israel was to come at the end of that nation. When Christ came, it was to mark the end of that nation because there was going to be a shaking of the heavens and of the earth, which would bring in a new form of worship. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Jesus Christ had a ministry, and he spoke, he revealed God's word to the people of Israel. We read in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord hath anointed me to preach the gospel. Jesus Christ was a preacher and a minister of righteousness to the Jews. But he's superior to the prophets, and now we have seven reasons given as to why he is superior. First of all, he's called God's Son, and that's not even one of the seven. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now the word Son does not mean what the word prophet means. The word prophet is simply a messenger, and they knew the lives of their prophets. That's one proof of the inspiration of the Word of God. What book is ever written where the author admits all his own failings and shortcomings and sins? And the Bible contains all the failings and shortcomings and sins. 
of some of its most eminent heroes. They knew the lives of the prophets, and here Paul has already made an argument. Christ is superior to the prophets. The New Testament gospel is superior to the Old Testament because this one has come to us by his Son as opposed to the prophets. Instead of being incomplete, instead of being a little bit to Moses, a little bit to Isaiah, a little bit to David, this one is wrapped up in his Son. Jesus Christ contained within his own knowledge all the revelation of God necessary for the New Testament. Jesus Christ taught everything anyone needed to know in the New Testament. And if you ever hear the objection, but the apostles taught a lot more than Jesus Christ taught, they added to Christ. Those apostles never taught one syllable that Jesus Christ had not taught verbally when he was here on earth. Jesus Christ said in John verses chapters 14 through 16, I will send the Spirit that will guide you into all truth and will bring to remembrance all things that I have commanded you. The Apostle Paul never taught anything Jesus Christ hadn't taught. He just had the Spirit of God bring it to his memory. If he taught more than Jesus Christ taught, then he was in violation of the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Because that commission tells us that they were to go and teach the disciples of Christ to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. It was all contained in one person. Is that better than uh, Moses? Moses telling you, God will raise up unto you a prophet like unto me. Him will you obey in all things. Now, there's a great revelation about Christ. Doesn't tell where he's born. Doesn't tell what tribe he's going to come from. Doesn't tell you much except that he's going to be superior to Moses and like Moses. But Jesus Christ had it all. He's superior. Notice now seven things in verses 2 and 3. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Number one whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Number two, by whom also he made the world. Number three, who being the brightness of his glory. Number four, and the express image of his person. Number five, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Number six, he by himself purged our sins. Number seven, he is sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high. Seven descriptions of Jesus that make him superior to the prophets. When we deal with the Son of God, we must rightly divide the word of truth or the book will be a source of confusion. Jesus, as the Son of God, is both God and man. And we must divide between those natures. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, when we read that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, what are we talking about? His human nature. In his divine nature, how could he grow in wisdom? He, he was all wisdom, personified. How could he grow in stature? He filled heaven and earth. What else could he fill? Talking about his human nature. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 13. This is so important to rightly divide the person of Christ. John chapter 3 and verse 13 where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. 
and no man hath ascended up to heaven. But he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now how is the Son of Man in heaven? John 3.13 How is the Son of Man that was standing there talking to Nicodemus in heaven while he was talking to Nicodemus? In his divine nature as the Word of God. John 3.13 We could go to all sorts of passages. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 tells us that God purchased the church with his own blood. When did God ever bleed? Spirits can't bleed because the Bible tells us spirits do not have flesh and blood. But it calls them God. How did God bleed? But by through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was not only the Word of God, but He was also the man, Jesus of Nazareth, combined together that made the God-man, the mediator. This is so important to understand that. This is Jesus Christ. This is the great mystery of our faith. Now, the Catholics can use that word, and they use it to refer to the Mass. This is the mystery of faith, but it's not that God is a cracker. It's that God was manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. We read in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We come down to verse 14, And the Word was made flesh. The Word of God, the second person in the divine trinity, came down and joined himself to human nature. Therefore, as we look at these seven descriptions of the preeminence of Christ, you must ask yourself, is it his human nature or his divine nature that is under consideration? And let's now look at them. First of all, we read in verse 2 that God hath appointed him heir of all things. That cannot be his divine nature because in his divine nature he already owns all things. This is coming into possession of all things by inheritance. And we read that in Psalm 2, didn't we? How that upon the resurrection of Christ, when Jesus ascended up into the throne room of God, God made Him heir of all things by making Him Lord and Christ. The Jesus they crucified is now Lord in Christ, and all things are His. This is a description of His human nature but in its exalted state after the resurrection. Because it was given to him by inheritance. In Isaiah 53 and verse 12, which speaks of the sufferings of Christ, we read that because he suffered, God rewarded him with spoils of victory. When he ascended upon high, God rewarded Christ for what he did in humbling himself and willingly becoming a sacrifice on the cross. And he rewarded him with spoils. We're going to get to one spoil. It's the Holy Ghost later in this chapter. But he also rewarded him with all things in heaven and in earth. He inherited all things that are God's because he is God's son. This is a description of his human nature in its exalted state. Now remember, those poor Jews had worshipped a God that owned all things. Now they were following a man that didn't have anything. Doesn't the Bible tell us he didn't even have a place to lay his head? 
What's Paul convincing them of right off the bat? God hath appointed him heir of all things. This is powerful if you're a Jew and if you look at it the right way. Jesus of Nazareth is now the ruler of all things because God has given it to him by appointment. He is the heir for what he did in this world. He now has all things by whom also he made the world. Now, what nature is under consideration there? The divine nature. And here is the first argument that comes about the eternal sonship of Christ. Since it says in verse 2 that it is speaking of His Son, and since it says that by the Son He made the worlds, therefore, the Son must have existed before the worlds were made, therefore He is the eternal Son of God. Therefore, He must have been begotten in eternity because He had to be in existence in Genesis 1.1 in order to make the worlds. If Hebrews 1.2 proves that point, Look at Ephesians 3.9 and see what it proves. All those, listen, the Bible tells you to rightly divide the word of truth. Why does it tell you to rightly divide the word of truth? So that you won't be ashamed. Anybody who gets that confused with this simple of a concept ought to be ashamed. That's why we divide the Scriptures. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul's praying and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. They will not admit that Jesus existed in eternity. What they teach is that there was a Son of God in eternity. That God the Father had begotten a Son. Now, if Hebrews 1-2 proves that because the Son created the worlds, therefore He is an eternal Son, then Ephesians 3-9 proves that because Jesus created the worlds, then He's an eternal Jesus. And would you please tell me who His mother is? How do we reconcile both places? There are two natures under consideration. He made the worlds in His divine nature the Word of God. Because John 1.3 tells us all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And who is that Him? But the Word of God, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He made the world. He made all things that are in the world. Nothing accepted. In His divine nature. In His divine nature. Someone will say, but why does it say the Son created the worlds here and over there in Ephesians 3.9? Why would you say that Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees to follow God? Did Abraham leave Ur of the Chaldeans to follow God? No, it was Abram. But because he obtained a name later in his life called Abraham, we can refer to that person by that later name, even though it's describing things he did before he became Abraham. Listen, this is so infantile, it's hardly worth the time of bringing it up. If I tell you that my wife 
went to kindergarten when she was only four years old instead of the normal age of five. Are you confused, brethren? Was she my wife when she went to kindergarten? Or am I describing her by a relationship she took on later? And so it is when we say Jesus Christ created the world. It is no more complex than saying my wife went to kindergarten when she was four. Brother Jim, I want to thank you for mentioning the Sonship of Christ. I wish all of you would go back and read the outline and listen to the tapes. If you want me to give you some commentaries to read in the subject, it is an essential element of our faith. It is not something to be taken lightly. It is so crucial to your understanding of Jesus Christ. If you waver on this point, you do not know Jesus Christ. And I'll go further. He that denieth the Father and the Son, according to 1 John 2.22. He that denieth the Father and the Son. And that place there is not talking about people who deny the existence of the Father and the Son. It's talking about people who deny the proper relationship of the Father and the Son are Antichrist. 1 John 2.22. I am... Listen, I could cancel Hebrews right now and preach in the Sonship of Christ. It's been three years since I preached on that subject. Three years. I couldn't believe it last night. December of 1985. It is an essential element of our faith. You better know it well. Here is a verse that they'll go to to try to prove that Christ is an eternal Son. He made the world. What world? I thought there was only one world. This expression is only used twice in the Bible. It's used twice in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 11.3, we read that through faith, He framed the worlds. This is a Jewish expression, obviously, because it's written to Jews. The Jews had several concepts of multiple worlds, just like the Bible teaches different have levels of heaven. There was a celestial world. There was a world where the bird, you know, the world of our planetary system, a solar world. And there's the world of the earth, and there's the world of the sea. There's different worlds. But we don't even need to go to the worlds of the Jews. We can go to 2 Peter 2.5, where Peter tells us that the world that then was perished. That's the old world. Now we live in a new world. There's two worlds right there, and God made them both. Because if it hadn't been for the Son of God, after the flood, there wouldn't have been a revival of this world. He made the worlds. Let's move on. Verse 3, who being the brightness of His glory. Jesus Christ is the brightness of God's glory. Now is Jesus Christ the brightness of God's glory in His divine nature? No, He is God. He is God's glory. But He's the brightness of God's glory in His human nature. Remember over there in Exodus chapter 33 where Moses is begging God to be able to see the glory of God? Exodus chapter 33, Moses said, Show me now thy glory. And God says, I can't do it. I can only show you a little bit. I'll show you my backside. You can read it in Exodus 33. Well, that isn't true with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the brightness of God's glory. When you see Jesus Christ, you see the glory of God because how is the glory of God manifested? Go look in Exodus chapter 33 when God showed him his backside. The goodness of God. The grace of God. The faithfulness of God. And where are they all perfectly fulfilled but in Jesus Christ? 
Listen to these words, brethren. I want to save time. Let's not turn. John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. You want to see the glory of God? Then look at Jesus Christ. See Jesus Christ. Get to know Him better, and you'll see the glory of God. God is neither visible nor perceptible. You can't see God, but you can see Jesus Christ, and He's the brightness of His glory. Let's look at the next expression. Jesus Christ is also the express image of His person. John 1.18 tells us, No man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son hath revealed Him. You want to see God? Then look to Jesus Christ. Come over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, one thing we believe about God is that He is invisible, dwelling in a light which no man can approach unto. No man hath seen God, can see God, or ever will see God. There is nothing to see. He is an eternal spirit. What will you rest your eyes upon? He fills heaven and earth. You're looking at Him now if you want to be foolish. Because He's everywhere. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Speaking of His dear Son in verse 13, the Bible tells us in verse 15, who is the image. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible, but Jesus Christ is His express image. You want to see the grace of God? Then look to Christ. You want to see the judgment of God? Then look at Christ. Whether it's driving the money changers from the temple, whether it's prophesying of the destruction of Jerusalem, or whether it's sitting on a throne from which the heavens and the earth shall flee away from His terrible face. Jesus Christ is the express image of God. You're there at Colossians, I hope. Look also at chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 9. Speaking of Christ, it's the last word in verse 8. For in Him that is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dwelleth most of the fullness, dwelleth all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus Christ, in that human body, that was five, nine, six foot, whatever, in that body, dwell all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, because in that body was the Word of God. And the Word of God was God. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, Paul's really taking care of these Jews here in verses 2 and 3. The prophets, you want to take up Moses after he gets through with these seven proofs? You want to take up Elisha or Elijah compared to Jesus Christ, God's Son? He's the express image of His person. He upholds all things by the word of His power. Jesus Christ not only made all things, Jesus Christ not only is the object and end of all creation, Jesus Christ is the preserver of all things. Colossians chapter 1 tells us, by Him all things consist or hold together. If it were not for Jesus Christ holding things together, the atoms that scientists study in the laboratory would not hold together. What keeps neutrons, protons, and electrons working together? What holds molecules together? Why doesn't my body just explode this morning? Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of His power, and that is not His human nature, 
that is His divine nature. By Him all things consist. What keeps this earth revolving if it truly revolves? What keeps our planets moving in a certain regulated order? What keeps the laws of gravity and other forces of nature active? They don't get out of bounds. What governs all those things with the power of Jesus Christ by His Word? He's spoken unto us by His Son, who upholds all things by the Word of His power. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 11, For of Him He created all things, and to Him He is the object of all things, and through Him are all things. He preserves them all. He directs them all. Of Him, to Him, and through Him are all things. May Jesus Christ be praised. He is the Son of God. He by Himself purged our sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross and by the obedience of one, many were made righteous. And you might say, well, how strong of an argument is the redemption of Christ? It is stronger than the creation the creatorship of Christ. He could create the worlds, but He redeemed sinners. He satisfied the infinite demands of the legal nature of God by His death on the cross, and He did it by Himself. These Jews, can you imagine being a Jew? You've offered sacrifices as a nation every day, morning, evening. The sacrifice of the morning, the sacrifice of the evening, and all the other sacrifices daily to try to put away sins. And what does Jesus Christ do? He comes along and by Himself purges our sins. You may not appreciate that. Jews appreciated that. They had sacrifices every year that did nothing but make a remembrance of sin. Jesus Christ put them all away, put them all away by Himself. Moses may have given laws on how to bring sacrifices to try to purge your conscience from dead works. Jesus Christ came along and by one sacrifice, by Himself, no priest helping. He was the altar. He was the sacrifice. He was the priest. He was everything. By Himself purged our sins. You go read the New International Version, the New American Standard Version, the Catholic Versions, the Mormon Versions, any version you want to pick. In Hebrews 1.3, you'll find two words missing, brethren. Those words are by Himself. Go read any version but the King James Version by Himself is missing. And that's where our faith stands, doesn't it? That He by Himself purged our sins. And not only did He purge our sins, He sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. The right hand, my friend, is a place where you put the next in authority, the next in power and glory. And that's where Jesus Christ is at this time. He's sitting. What does that say to you? He's at rest. You don't sit when you've got a job to do. His sacrifice has been completed. His sins are put away. He's sitting. He's at rest. He's sitting. He must have confidence. If he didn't have confidence that his offering was accepted by God, yet he'd be on his knees before God. But he's sitting at his right hand. His work is finished. Didn't he say that in John 19 and verse 30? It is finished. Therefore, he can sit down. And he's done that. On the right hand, of the majesty on high. There are seven descriptions of Jesus, the Son of God, that makes Him somewhat better than the prophets. 
Oh, there's, I wish I could go back over them. I'm just chopping this morning, but you're getting the main message. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, is a great king, a great savior, a great priest, a great creator, and in no way can be compared to the prophets. He is superior. We move without even having a period. We move to argument number two, and that is that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. If you would have been arguing with a Jew from Roman, from the first three verses here, they would have said, yes, but there is above those prophets a group of beings that God has created above all men, known as the angels that have ministered to our nation. And so Paul takes up with the angels. Those Jews knew that they had received the law of God from angels. We read several times in Scripture that God came down with His angels on Mount Sinai, and the mountain was altogether on a smoke because of the presence of those beings and the presence of God. They knew that Jacob had wrestled with an angel before meeting Esau and that God had blessed him. They knew that Elisha had once prayed for the eyes of a young servant boy to be opened. And he had seen the mountains around Samaria filled with fiery chariots of God's angels there to protect them. They knew about a single angel that went out one night into the host of the Assyrians and slew 185,000. And they were all dead corpses, the Bible tells us, in the morning. They knew that an angel had closed the mouths of lions to protect Daniel one day in the lion's den. They knew that God's angel had delivered Peter from prison. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. They knew that twice God's angel. They knew all about angels. And while I can't preach about angels again this morning, I did that several months ago, they knew about angels. And they considered angels a step above prophets and men. And what Paul is now going to do is to show that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels, as if verses 2 and 3 were not enough to make that point. They were enough to make that point because it cannot be said of the angels that they fulfilled any one of those seven things. But without a period, Paul says in verse 4, being made so much better than the angels. As he, Paul is not arguing that Jesus as the Word of God in His divine nature is greater than the angels. He's arguing that Jesus as a man is greater than the angels. Being made so much better than the angels. Now that being made is referring us back to the last clause of verse 3. That's why there isn't a period at the end of verse 3, and you'd want it that way. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 ends with the words that Jesus, the Son of God, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's the point. No angel ever sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Those angels don't dare stop flapping their wings, nor do they ever sit still because they're always doing his bidding. They're running to and fro in the earth to do the, to keep the commandments of Christ and of God. But he sat down being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This being made better than the angels refers to the fact that Jesus was exalted after His ascension. Here's the point. You want to see a dilemma? Hebrews 2.4, being made so much better than the angels. Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus made a little 
lower than the angels. Handle it. Hebrews 2.4, being made so much better than the angels. Hebrews 1.4, being made so much better than the angels. Hebrews 2.9, being made a little lower than the angels. Now, wait a minute, God. Wait a minute, Paul. What is it? In his humiliation. In his humiliation. When Jesus Christ came down, was born of a woman, tabernacled among men, died a crucifixion death, Jesus Christ was made lower than the angels. To have to be confined to a body of flesh and blood is lower than the angels. <laughs> They're not so confined. Remember, they can run from the presence of God to Daniel while he prays a two-sentence prayer. Remember how fast they are? He was made lower than the angels. But after his resurrection, being exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, he is made better than the angels. It's those Jews saw him as he was lower than the angels. But Paul is now arguing that is not the state he's in right now. He's at the right hand of God better than the angels. Do you follow that? And it's not talking about his divine nature. That wouldn't even be a question. The fact is in his human nature he's now greater than the angels because he has sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high and guess where the angels are? They're gathered all around the throne and guess what they're doing? They're praising the one sitting on the throne. Which makes a big difference. Let's move on. Being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. What name did Jesus Christ receive that is better than the name of any angel which proves his superiority to them? Son. For unto which of the angels said he at any time Thou art my son. An angel is simply a servant. The son is the son. Need I say any more? Son is superior to servant. That's the name. But now, I want to compare a scripture with this. It, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 that because he was humiliated at his resurrection, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. He's made him highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And what name is that? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now, do we have a contradiction there? Not if you know Acts 8.37. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch said, what must I do to be baptized? What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest, thou mayest. And he said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They are the same thing. They are the same name for all practical purposes. Looking at the meaning of names, not simply the letter. Jesus and Son are the same thing because they're describing the same being. God has given him the name Jesus and the name Son to prove his superiority over the angels and all other beings as a result of his humiliation, as a reward for his humiliation. In verse 5, Paul takes up what are called rhetorical questions. They used to study rhetoric in school. We don't have rhetoric anymore. Rhetoric is how to speak effectively and how to argue and persuade. The rules of effective argumentation. Rhetorical questions are where you ask such an obvious question. Everyone knows the answer, but it helps convince you it's actually stronger than stating the point. Jesus is a son and the angels are not sons. 
That's one way it could be stated. How about this? For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. You know, these Jews have to sit there and th- do you think they know their Old Testaments? Do you think they know this comes from Psalm 2 and verse 7? You bet they do. For unto which of the angels did he ever say? <laughs> He'd never say that to an angel. They know that. It's a powerful way of arguing. Paul uses it a lot in Hebrews, four times in chapter 1. There's one que- there's two questions in verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? That's question one. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That is to say, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? Two questions about the angels. The other two questions are in verses 13 and 14. Rhetorical questions. Questions we know the answers to. And because we know the answers, and it's formed in a question, it's powerful at making us think it through and we see the answer. Obviously, we have to say. Obviously. He never said that to an angel. Very effective. I hope you'll remember to use questions when dealing with people. Jesus Christ Himself used a lot of questions also. This day have I begotten thee. Brethren, that phrase right there, Hebrews 1, verse 5, is used to establish that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. That this day refers to the eternal day of God's in eternity past of begetting a son by eternal generation. Go read it in any good Calvinistic theology. They are so ignorant. Hebrews 1, 5, referring to the eternal sonship of Christ. Now wait a minute. You can't have an eternal begetting. Begetting or generating a son, brethren, took time. I can remember generating my five children. And there's nothing gross or crude about that. I remember doing it. It's an act of time to generate a child. It cannot be done in eternity, or eternity doesn't mean eternity. Or generation doesn't mean generation. You can't have both. You can't stick the word eternal with the word generation. And God proves that in the verse if they'd read it when He said, this day, a point in time. It's not an eternal generation. It is a point in time. And you say, but the words this day could mean a whole lot of days. You want to bet? Look at chapter 4 and verse 7. Chapter 4 and verse 7. I love the Word of God. Look at this. Again, He limiteth. A certain day, saying in David, today. Well, now, wait a minute, Paul. How did you know that he limited it to a certain day? Paul says simply because he said today. When God says this day or today, he limits it to a certain day. They can't avoid that. If they want to go into Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5, I'm going to pull them out through Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 7. And when I pull them out, it's going to look like they went through World War III without body armor. It's pitiful. I wish they'd apply the second half of that verse to the eternal sonship of Christ. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What verb tense is in in that clause? Future tense. I will be to him a father. 
That means he wasn't yet his son. They call it eternal generation. Well, how do you write before eternity? Brethren, the doctrine of the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ stinks. When I read the Word of God from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 22, I can only find the reference eternal Father used one time. Please sit there and just let this sink in. Only one time in all the Word of God is the adjective eternal ever applied to the Father. Get this. And let Jesus Christ be vindicated. It is found in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 where it is a name of Jesus Christ, the Son. If they want to teach eternal sonship, then Jesus Christ is the eternal Father and God the Father is the eternal Son if they want to use the Word of God. Does that help you at all? Do you like things like that in the Word of God? Why would God only put the adjective eternal with Father one time, and that's in Isaiah 9.6, as a name for the Son? Bless His holy name! Let the Roman creeds rot. Verse 6. And again, what are the answers to the two questions in verse 5? Do you have any difficulty? Under which of the angels said he, Thou art my son? None. Under which of the angels said, did he say, I will be to him a father? None. We've got that settled. Verse 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. Here's another argument. Paul's just quoting Old Testament. Do you think the Jews love a preacher who quotes the Scriptures a lot? You bet they do. They're saying, Amen, Amen. They don't like his application quite as much. But he's quoting their Scriptures, and he's doing it seven times in one chapter. And people come in and sit here, and they say, You run around the Bible too much. Well, God said to preach here a little and there a little. Paul did it, and I do it. That's God's way. Seven times in one chapter. And they're all seven different locations. Just pulled from here and there. Here a little, there a little. Precept upon precept. Look at the two precepts in verse 5. Another precept in verse 6. Another one in verse 7. Four reasons, right? Bang, 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 bang. That Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. Verse 6. He's superior because when He brought His Son into the world, the commandment was given, let all the angels of God worship Him. Psalm 97 and verse 7. Let all the angels of God worship Him. What did the shepherds find that night they were out in the field? But a great host of the heavenly multitude praising God over the birth of Jesus Christ. And they didn't stop worshiping the Son then. Look at Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11. Revelation 5 and verse 11. This is so good. Jesus Christ is sitting on His throne. What is around His throne? Revelation 5.11 And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb, and He is the Son of God, that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Let all the angels of God worship Him. Jesus 
is better than the angels because Jesus is sitting down relaxed right now on a throne while all the angels are round about it singing, Worthy is the Lamb to receive all blessing and glory and power. Now does that prove that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels? Is the one worshipped superior to those worshipping? Obviously so. We can go to verse 7. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels and brethren, there is no apostrophe in that word angels to make it possessive. It doesn't say who maketh his angels spirits. In the way of possession, it says who makes his angels spirits. Angels are simply created beings, and guess who made them? The Son of God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Who made His angels spirits. Jesus Christ decided to create some spirit beings called angels. And He made them. He called them angels. And His ministers a flame of fire. When we studied angels, we saw how that they are seen as flames of fire so many times in Scripture. Is the Creator greater than the creature? Is the question and the argument of verse 7. I want to go back to verse 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world. The two little words that open up verse 6, and again. Do you know what those two words mean? What they're there for? Because he's quoting Scripture for the third time. He's quoted it once in verse 5 from Psalm 2 and verse 7. He's quoted again in verse 5 from 2 Samuel 7.14. And in verse 6, He's quoting from Psalm 97 and verse 7. That's what the words again are there for. And again. See, he used the words and again in the middle of verse 5. And he uses the word and in verse 7. He's quoting. And, the Bible says. And, the Bible says again. That's why he uses the word again. You ought to read some good commentators on Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6, which tell us that when God brings again the first begotten into the world, all the angels of God will worship him. That is the current, modern interpretation of this verse. Do you know what that comes from? The Jewish fables of premillennialism when God will bring the first begotten back into this world. Brethren, Jesus Christ is not coming back into this world. By the time He gets to it, it's going to be a cinder. You say, I just don't believe that. I was hoping you'd say that. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6. Now you look at your Bibles. I'll read from the New American Standard Version. This is Stuart Custer's favorite. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. You smell something rotten. And it ain't turnips. And it isn't in Denmark. It's down the street at the bastion of orthodoxy and fundamentalism called premillennialism. When he brings the first begotten again into the world. Uh uh. He said that all the angels of God worship him when he first brought him into this world. The words, and again, are simply there to say that Paul is quoting Scripture another time to prove his point. That Jesus is superior to the angels. Does that get you upset at all? What, what could a man do if it wasn't for the grace of God against men like that who will corrupt the word of God so terribly? But verse 8, verse 8 is a verse you should never forget. The next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, lay this bomb on them. Remember, Jehovah's Witnesses, among many others, deny that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is a very high being. 
He is the Son of God, but He is a created being Himself. He has created all others. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe about Jesus. And so do the Unitarians. And the Seventh-day Adventists aren't really sure on that point. And so do the Mormons with their little variations. Lay this one on them. Now, what we've just had quoted to us are things that God has said about angels. But, verse 8, But unto the Son He saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Let me ask you about three questions. Who said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever? God the Father said it. This is no man. This is no angel or no prophet saying that Jesus Christ the Son is God. This is God the Father identifying Jesus the Christ as God. Thy throne, O God, and it tells us it is directed to the Son. Do we need to be confused about the point whether Jesus is true deity or not? That Jesus is the true Son of God or not? That all those that want to deny, question, or otherwise play with the fact that Jesus is God, be anathema. Here is a Bible called the New World Translation of the Scriptures of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Let me read Hebrews 1.8 and please follow closely in your Bibles. And brethren, there are not one or two evangelical Christians who agree with this interpretation. Hebrews 1.8 But with reference to the Son... God is your throne forever. And the scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of righteousness. Hell will not be hot enough for those damned liars. Because they are damned. They are under the judgment of God who were before ordained to this condemnation. Unto the Son He saith, Thy throne O God, establishing forever that Jesus the Son is God. And He is on a throne, and He will be on that throne forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Thy kingdom. Remember, the scepter is that jewel, short little stick they held in their hands that was the emblem of their power and authority. Remember Ahasuerus held that scepter. When Esther came in, she hoped that he raised it toward her so that she was accepted. It's a symbol of kingly authority. And he has a scepter. He is so far above the angels. He is God. They are simply his creatures. There is an infinite distance between God and the angels. They can't even be compared. He's on his throne and the throne that he sits on, he has a scepter of righteousness. Verse 9 tells us of this Son that is God, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. The great men who want to pattern themselves after Jesus Christ must not only love righteousness, they must hate iniquity. Great men are great haters. David said, Therefore I esteem all thy commandments concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Jesus Christ hated iniquity. You meet some of these milquetoast Christians today who don't like the word hate, who'd be upset with the word damn. 
They're pitiful. They're, they're, they're not even Christians because they don't even look like Christ. Christ hates iniquity. And if you'll ever read the New Testament, you'll find he used the word damn more than once. Because they are damned. They're under the judgment of God and His condemnation. Which is what it is to be damned. Foreordained to condemnation. If that isn't damned, I don't know what is. The great men of this world that God has blessed and those that are like Jesus Christ are great haters. I don't even need to talk to you about being great lovers because that is pumped at us so much it becomes sickening. They're great haters. Great men of zeal have great love and they have great hatred and so did Christ. I read over in Revelation chapter 2 two times. I read in verse 6 and I read in verse 15. He says, I know that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And it doesn't only apply to things, it applies to men. David said, do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. Do I sound like I have any hatred in me this morning? If I don't, let me try again. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. I hate them with perfect hatred. Not because of anything they've done to me. Listen, one of those poor, ignorant, deluded souls comes to my door. It's no, it doesn't bother me. It's because they're messing with Jesus Christ, my Lord and my King and my God. Therefore, verse 9, as a result of Christ's loving righteousness and hating iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Let me quickly explain that anointing of with oil as referring to the Holy Spirit in two different applications. He was given the Spirit of God without measure. We read in John chapter 3 and verse 34. There was no limit because He was given the Spirit of God infinitely. We read in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 that Peter preached to Cornelius, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and He went about doing good. And He received that Holy Ghost without measure. But not only that, there's a much more there's a much better application of this verse. And that's found in Acts chapter 2. And for those of you who love the Holy Ghost and the kingship of Christ, look at it with me. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. God anointed Jesus Christ with the oil of gladness. What is the fruit of the Spirit but joy? Why did John the Baptist leap in the womb of his mother Elizabeth? Because he was filled with the Holy Ghost. It's called the oil of gladness. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, because of His resurrection, because of what He did while He was here in this world, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. All the gifts of the Holy Ghost are coming to us second hand, brethren. They're coming to a second hand. God gave the Holy Ghost to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in turn distributes it to us. He said in the book of John that God will give the Comforter to me and I'll in turn send Him to you. That is the anointing of oil of the Spirit of God which He gives to us. But He has received that above all His fellows, whether they be angels, prophets, or the saints. He is above them all. Verse 10, and 
Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10. And. You know, we sometimes are glad that Strong put the words and, the, it, a, in, in the back of the concordance so we wouldn't have to mess with them. Are you glad this word and is here? This word and is probably the most important and in all the Bible. And. You know why that and is there? Because he is telling you that the things you are going to read in verses 10 through 12 are to be applied to the Son in the first part of verse 8. But unto the Son he saith. Now verses 8 and 9 are quotations from Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7. And he saith to the Son in verse 10. And those three verses are quotations from Psalm 102 verses 25 through 27. And it becomes important because you just start reading. It's a glorious revelation that these things are spoken of Jesus, the Son of God. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same and thy years shall not fail. Now that's a description. You'd look at it and you'd say, that's got to be talking about God the Father. It is not based on that little word, and. It's taking you back to the first part of verse 8. These are things said to the Son. God the Father said to the Son, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. God, Jesus Christ is the creator of earth and heaven. They're going to perish. He's not going to perish. He's going to remain the same. His years are not going to run out. He's going to fold up this world like you would fold up a dirty pair of socks. And they're going to be changed because He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. But He remains the same. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Will you be surprised when we get to Hebrews 13.8 and find those words? Not on your life. This world's going to pass away. But he's not going to change. And those three verses there, quoted from Psalm 102, apply to the Son of God by that little word, and. Isn't it important to read all these little words in the Bible? And, thou Lord, God, my Lord, said unto my Lord. Like Psalm 110, verse 1. Wow. People think we don't have much to get excited about believing all the doctrine we do. Wow! I mean, look at that. The word and. I get a blessing from the word and. Because these things are descriptions of the Son of God. And God is speaking to the Son. What an exalted being He is. He's going to fold up this world like a pair of socks and throw them in the dirty clothes. Yes, He will. The heavens included. And He'll make new heavens and a new word. Is Jesus Christ superior to the angels, brethren? Can you imagine getting this book as a Jew? This would blow you, this would blow you clear out of the water. And we've only got, we're not even through chapter one, although we're close. Verse 13. Here's another rhetorical question. Now he said all these things about the Son, beginning in verse 8 through 12. But to which of the angels said he at any time? Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's from Psalm 110 and verse 1. But to which of the angels said he 
at any time, sit on my right hand. He never said that. Verse 14, in answer to that question, is another question. Are they not all ministering spirits? Aren't all the angels simply servants? To be a minister of someone is to be his servant. Aren't all the angels just servants? Sent forth the minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? The answer to that rhetorical question is yes. That's all they are. Here are the Jews. They, you know, these angels are such exalted beings, and all they are are servants sent forth. Guess who's doing sending? We haven't got the message yet. Jesus, the Son of God, is doing the sending. He's sitting on his throne. They're standing right about it, waiting for his orders, and he sends them. And they have to serve, guess what? Men. Men. Now, how low can you get to have to serve men when you're an angel? And Jesus Christ sends them to do that. Because, brethren, there's going to be a day where we shall rule and judge angels. Psalm 34 and verse 7. I can't preach on angels again, and I can't preach much more this morning for time reasons. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. The whole chapter here is spent to prove that Jesus Christ is superior to prophets and to angels. But we end with a very comforting thought. And that is that Jesus Christ that is so eminently higher, that is preeminently above all beings in heaven or in earth, has sent angelic beings to be our servants. I preached a couple of messages. I reviewed that the past couple of weeks, looking at the material we covered on those angels. That is a glorious thought, that there are those kind of beings as our servants. They're encamped round about us right now because the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. How many times have you been delivered by angels and you don't even know it? I can remember one Sunday evening service where you all stood and gave events in your lives where you believed that you had been delivered by angels, but those were ones you recognized. What about all the ones we've never noticed? That great God and Savior Jesus Christ has poured out His Spirit to His church. He's also given angels. Look at Psalm 91, and I'm right at the end of my rope this morning. Psalm 91. We live in an age where men are filled with fear. The Bible warned us that in the last times men's hearts would fail them for fear. You know, I wonder what the number one cause of heart disease is in America when the Bible says men's hearts shall fail them for fear. You don't need to be afraid. One of the points I tried to make in that series on angels was the fact that the fact that because God has sent His angels to be our servants, we ought not to be afraid. You know, there are people afraid to, to go and drink from a public drinking fountain because they're going to get AIDS. And I can remember when you used to have to go in, you know, wipe the toilet seat three or four times and wash your hands two or three times because you might get polio. Washing your hands, brethren, is not wrong. The overemphasis on fear and trying to protect yourselves is wrong. Look at Psalm 91, verses 9 through 12. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, 
even the Most High, thy habitation. And I pray that all of you have done that this morning. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee, 